All right, you can join me in Isaiah 53. If you would like, we'll be looking at Isaiah 53 this evening. We're going to try to answer a simple question tonight, simple question. On that first Good Friday, 2,000 years ago, what exactly did Jesus suffer on our behalf? What did Jesus suffer on our behalf? Isaiah answered that question, actually, 500 years before Jesus even came in this chapter, Isaiah 53. He gives us two answers to that question. What did Jesus suffer for us? Two things. Uh, The first, Jesus was despised by men. On that first Good Friday, 1980 years ago, to be precise, Jesus suffered abuse and ridicule at the hands of men. That's what we gave to Jesus on that first Good Friday. So look with me, Isaiah 53, we'll start in verse 2. Isaiah says of Jesus, for he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. Let me unpack some of the key words here, tender shoot. Uh, That actually is referring to a sucker shoot, if you know what that is, on the on the base of a tree, you see them all around town these days, it's spring, and so there's sucker shoots coming out from the base of all the trees around town, and they look really bad. They're, they're stunted growth that comes up from the trunk of a tree that will turn a tree into a bush. It's actually bad for a tree. You've got you to gotta rip it off and throw it away. It is undesirable growth to be thrown away. That's a tender shoot. He says that he was uh, like a root out of parched ground. This is Jesus. He is God's Messiah, God's son. You would expect him to be like a mighty oak, powerful. And yet Isaiah said he's like a, like a root coming out of parched ground. It, it's pathetic looking. It's, it's weak looking. It's a root that you just want to rip out and throw away and put it out of its misery. Isaiah is describing Jesus' birth and youth. You know the story. Jesus was born to a poor, unmarried girl back in the first century in Jewish culture. That was scandalous. That was shameful. And he wasn't even born in a house. He was born in a manger, a dirty, filthy manger. And then he was taken back to Nazareth, a small, insignificant town, to grow up the poor son of a carpenter. Jesus lived an an absolutely unremarkable life. If Jesus would have gone to your high school, he would have never been voted most likely to succeed, and certainly not most popular. If you had a high school reunion with Jesus, he would be the guy that no one knew. He was completely unremarkable. Uh, Not only was he unremarkable, but you notice Isaiah tells us he was was unattractive. He had no, no stately form about him. It's actually fascinating. We have four gospels, so four stories that tell us about Jesus. Uh, They contain over 3,700 verses about Jesus. And in all of those 3,700 verses, what you will not find is a single verse about Jesus's appearance. Not a single one. Interesting to compare Old Testament guys. Saul, we're told, stood head and shoulders above everyone else. David was ruddy and and had great eyes and was a man that was very attractive to everyone. But Jesus, we just have complete silence. Not a word about his appearance. Why? Because he was not an attractive man. There was nothing attractive about him that would draw you to him. It's ironic. When Mel Gibson was casting for The Passion of the Christ, he chose Jim Caviezel. Voted by People Magazine, one of Time's sexiest men alive, to be Jesus. Well, Mel, that was really bad casting because Jesus was not attractive. There was nothing attractive about him to draw you to look at him. Jesus is God. 
And so you realize he could have chosen anybody to be in. And he could have chosen any family to be born into. And yet Jesus chose an unattractive body and a disadvantaged family. As a result, no one thought anything of him. He was completely unremarkable. He was born into shame. But worse, look at verse 3. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we did not esteem him. A man of sorrow, sorrow there in Hebrew, it literally means pain. He was a man who knew pain well. Talking here about about Good Friday, I think in particular, what Jesus suffered on that last day of his life. He, He knew pain. He knew grief. The word in Hebrew, it's actually used of illness. Jesus was under so much pain, so much torture and abuse that he looked like a person who was chronically ill whose body was broken, uh, whose body was falling apart, Uh, the result is he became like one from whom men hide their faces. On Good Friday, you would not have wanted to look at Jesus. It would be revulsing to you to look at him. Reminds me, 13 years ago, I was in India. I took a trip to India with the company that I worked at. And I remember distinctly, I, I can still see it when I close my eyes. We were driving through Mumbai and we were on this big highway and there was a median. And I looked out at the car as we're flying down the road just in time to see a man walking down the median who was covered from head to toe in boils. He was a leper first and only real life leper I've ever seen. And he was from lower caste. So all he had was a loincloth. He was filthy. All of his boils were weeping. And, and I, I looked at him for just long enough to start losing my lunch. I, I could not look. It was so horrible. I, I could not look. I had to turn away. That is Jesus on Good Friday. He was tortured and abused to the point that you couldn't even look at him. It would have turned your stomach to look at the son of God on that first Good Friday. That leads to the conclusion of Jesus' contemporaries there at the beginning. He was despised and forsaken of men and then repeated at the end of the verse, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Despised in Hebrew doesn't have any emotional overtones. It's not like the idea of hatred. Despised here means they didn't want anything to do with them. They they just didn't even want to look at Jesus. They wanted to be as far from him as possible. Did not esteem. That means that they did not value Jesus. When they looked at Jesus, they didn't see anything valuable there. On that first Good Friday, Jesus was despised and not esteemed by mankind. And then look at verse 4. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken smitten of God and afflicted. Now, now we know that in reality, Jesus suffered for us. He took our grief, our suffering and our place, but they didn't know that. The society that Jesus was in didn't realize that. So when they looked at Jesus, what they saw was a man cursed by God. They saw a man cursed. They saw a man suffering a horrible curse and no good man would suffer a fate like that. So they concluded, well, Jesus must be a criminal. He must be a horrific sinner to be suffering what he is suffering. On that first Good Friday, Jesus suffered the rejection and abuse of the world. And don't miss the irony. He who is creator, Jesus created the world. He created humanity. The creator chose to be abused by the creation. He chose it. It was his free choice. 
On that first Good Friday, Jesus was despised by men. That's the first thing Isaiah wants us to understand about the suffering of Jesus. What did he suffer from us? He willingly chose to be despised by men. But that's not all. Not only was Jesus despised by men on that first Good Friday, 1980 years ago, second, he was punished by God. That's what he received from God the Father, punishment. The wrath of God against sin. That is what Jesus suffered for us. From the hands of God, he received punishment. Look with me, starting in verse 5. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Skip down to verse 10. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief if he would render himself as a guilt offering. We'll stop there for now. The cross was not just a place of death. It was a place of punishment. The cross is the place where God's righteous wrath against sin was poured out to the fullest extent. But it was not poured out upon sinners who deserved it. It was poured out upon the Son of God who didn't. That's what Isaiah is getting at in verse 5. He, he tells us over and over again through repetition. He was pierced. and In Hebrew, that means to be pierced fatally. Jesus was killed by God on our behalf. He was crushed. That word means to be broken in pieces, pulverized, trampled to death for our sins. He was chastened. That word means to be punished. He was punished by God for our well-being. He was scourged. That means to be wounded, to be slashed. For us, for our healing. And in the metaphor of verse 6, you realize we're the sheep in that metaphor. We are the stupid, foolish, sinful sheep who wander away in rebellion. And yet the the consequences of our sin do not fall upon us. They, They fall upon Jesus instead. And it's interesting that word translated fall upon. Actually in Hebrew, that's that's not a strong enough translation. It means to attack. To hunt someone down so you can do harm to them. The idea here is that God the Father was pleased to cause the attack of our sin to fall upon his son rather than us. Isaiah makes it crystal clear in verse 10. He says that God the Father was was pleased to crush Jesus. He was pleased to make Jesus suffer. And not because God is a a child abuser or a sadist. It's because God was pleased that the son demonstrated such love for us. That's what pleased the heart of God the Father. That his own beloved, innocent, perfect son would willingly suffer our fate, our punishment out of love for us. That is what pleased God the Father. Jesus took our punishment to become our our guilt offering. That word takes us back actually to Leviticus, to the idea of animal offerings in the Old Testament. Forgiveness has always required death. I don't know if if you realize that. Forgiveness of sins always requires death. God promised that all the way back in Genesis 3. Remember, you you will die, die. Sin always requires blood. And so in the Old Testament, the Israelites offered animals in their place to die in their place because the wages of sin is death. So let's kill this animal instead of us. And yet we know those animals could not suffice. No animal can remove the sin of a person. And so that animal sacrifice, it, it foreshadowed the day 
when God would send a perfect lamb, one perfect divine sacrificial being who would die on our behalf, that is Jesus. He suffered punishment from God on our behalf on that first Good Friday, 1980 years ago. Jesus chose to be despised by men and punished by God. And why did he do that? He was God's son. He is divine. He's eternal, omnipotent. He could have chosen to not do that. Why did he choose? To be despised by men and punished by God. He tells us in verse 11. Look with me at verse 11. Isaiah says, as a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. The he of this verse is Jesus. It's talking about Jesus. And what Isaiah is saying is that Jesus will look back at his life, at all of his suffering, at all of his pain, and he will regret none of it. He will be pleased at the life that he lived. He will be happy about all that he suffered. Why? Because it made justification possible. The many will be justified. Justification, to be justified, it means to be declared right. It means that God declares you to be forgiven. Your sins are removed. You are right with God now and forever. To be justified means that you will never be punished by God. You will never suffer wrath. That was taken care of at the cross. That's what it means to be justified. So on Good Friday, Jesus was despised by men and punished by God so that we could be justified, so that we could be forgiven and saved. But notice what Isaiah says. Justification is for the many, not for the all. Back in verse six, he told us Jesus would die for the sins of all. Jesus died for the sins of all of humanity. And yet it is only the many who are justified. Why is that? Well, you know the answer. If you know the most famous verse in the Bible, John three sixteen, many of you know it by heart. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Justification is not something you earn. It is not something you work for, but it is something that you must receive in faith. You have to believe that God is offering it to you. You have to believe that Jesus, God's own son, really did suffer for you. He died for you. He took your punishment in your place so that you could be forgiven as a free gift. You have to believe that to receive eternal life. And so if you're here this evening and and that's new to you, you, you've never heard that before, I want to invite you. There's nothing you have to do. You don't have to walk the aisle, don't have to pray the prayer, don't even have to tell me, although I would love to know. All you have to do is simply believe right now in the quiet of your own heart, just believe that God's son really did die for you. You deserved wrath. You deserve God's eternal punishment, but God loves you. And so he sent his son to take your punishment in your place. And then God raised Jesus from the dead. That's what we get to celebrate Sunday, a much happier day than today. Defeating sin and death on your behalf so that you could live with God forever. All you gotta do is believe it. And for those of us who have believed that good news, who who do believe that Jesus, God's son, died for us and rose from the dead, tonight we get to celebrate that in communion. 
We're going to take some time in communion. We're going to do it a little differently than we typically do on a Sunday morning where the men will come forward and pass the elements. But you're going to have like seven or eight minutes to just sit here and reflect upon the death of Jesus. I want you to take this time and I want you to think about what Jesus suffered on your behalf. I want you to think, what, what was that Good Friday like for him? I want you to think about the abuse and the torture and the ridicule and the humiliation that the Son of God suffered for you as he hung naked on the cross in a public square, crucified as punishment for our sins. So take this time and and reflect on what Jesus suffered for you and then respond in gratitude. Give thanks to God. That's what this time is about. Give thanks to Jesus. Give thanks to God the Father for what has been done for you. And then when you are ready, you can take communion at at your own time. Whenever you feel led, just take the, the bread and the cup as an act of thanksgiving to God. And in seven to eight minutes, I'll come back up here and close us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that this was always your plan. Isaiah wrote this chapter 500 years before Jesus came because you already knew that this was what would be required for us to have forgiveness. Thank you that your son already knew. Long before he became a baby in a manger, he already knew the suffering he would endure. And yet he freely chose it. He chose to come and, and live for us, to live among us. And he chose to take our sins upon himself and suffer your wrath on our behalf. Thank you for what we celebrate on this evening. Thank you for the death of your son for our sins. And I pray that we would never forget that, Lord. I pray that we would be celebrating Good Friday every day, not just this day. But I do thank you, Lord, that Good Friday is not the end of the story. Thank you for what we get to celebrate Sunday. Thank you that his sacrificial death could not defeat him, that the grave could not hold him, and that Jesus rose victorious over sin and death. Thank you that he is our Savior alive in heaven, advocating for us, our high priest representing us. Thank you that he loves us, that he empowers us, that he is our Savior and friend. We look forward to the day when we get to see him and thank him face to face. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.